0: You're listening to the unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Frederick Kaufman, who is a professor of English and journalism at the City University of New York, otherwise known as CUNY, and is also the author of a couple of wonderful books. Most recently, this one called The Money Plot, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control, and Manipulate. And then you got a couple other books, A Short History of the American Stomach and Bet Farm, How Food Stopped Being Food. Welcome, Frederick. Thanks, great to be here. Look, you're writing about a couple of my favorite topics. You're writing about money and you're writing about food, but you also look at it through a literary lens, right? and an historical lens. And I really like that. I think we'll probably spend most of the time talking about the latest book, This Money Plot, where you go through uh, like a history of money and kind of a, a simultaneous history of literature. And I have to say, there are so many things that popped in this book, you know, little fun facts, many of which came from kind of the etymology of the words that we use for money and things like for interest and so forth. And I think most people, when they think about money, or actually most people don't really they think about getting money, but they don't really think about what money is. I don't think they realize that because it's based on a fiction, it's a common set of beliefs. It's I guess what we would call social reality, that it's built on narrative. And as we understand different types of narratives, We learn to appreciate the various ways that money is interwoven into our entire kind of intellectual life. And I guess there are two things that make humans different. That's one of the themes of the podcast. What makes humans different, it keeps coming up, is that we're storytelling animals and we're animals that use money. And there is no other animal that does either one of these things. Coincidence? I guess you would argue not. No, they're the same thing. Yeah. You're like an English professor. How did you get interested in money? We could talk later about food. Food came first. Food came before money.
1: It goes back to when I was writing my dissertation. I was doing some work about Federalist America, that really popular period of our history from 1740 to 1820 that everybody's so familiar with. And I got really into, at the time I was working, people were doing a lot of English criticism based on like body issues, gender issues, stuff like that. And I was like, how can I write about body issues without getting into gender, without getting into sexuality? And I thought, I'll look at medicine. And so I started, I know this seems really off base for money, but this is how it happened. I started getting really into the, this kind of weird medicine of the period, the lost, completely lost medicine. And a lot of it had to do with digestion. That was one of the secrets that was then being unlocked is how actually, you know, something came in, something left, but we got energy from it, how that worked. And it was a huge, it was a huge part of the field. And that was also, oddly enough, dealing with circulation, invisible circulations of money and of food. This is when the entire idea of the autonomic nervous system is discovered in Edinburgh during this period, which is that the idea of this kind of hidden, invisible nervous system that actually governs all these things like your heartbeat and your blood pressure and your peristalsis digestion and the way this moves through the body. So I ended up with this kind of weird PhD about early American literature and medicine. And I started being in New York and having been a magazine writer even before, I started doing a bunch of weird magazine pieces for Harper's Magazine, places like that, about American history and how it related to food. And that ended up being A Short History of the American Stomach, that book you very kindly brought up earlier. And so I wrote a lot of articles about food for, then I wrote maybe a hundred magazine articles over the next many years. And I got sick eventually, I got sick of writing about food. And I had a meeting with my editor. I was like, I'm done, no more writing about food. And so he said, how about writing about no food?
0: I was like, world hunger. And that was something I'd really tried to, <laughs> again, money. But you did write about fasting, right? That seemed to be a big part of the American diet. America seemed to be conflicted about food, right? On the one hand, we've got this dieting thing, which goes all the way back to the Puritans. But then we also have this food porn (laughs) where we like to swim in this abundance of food that's both beautiful and or cheap. Yeah, so I came
1: up with this term gastroporn way back in in the late 90s. And yeah, I spent a lot of time talking about the history of American bulimia, that sort of thing, going way back to Cotton Mather and the Puritans and all their Puritan puke, I called it. And anyway, so we, I was done writing about food. So I started writing about, okay, global hunger. And so I spent about a year starting to look into global hunger and I realized, okay, that what everybody knows about world hunger is that, well, anybody who looks at it for a while, there's plenty of food. There's totally enough food to feed everybody on the planet. People go hungry because they cannot afford the price of food. They get priced out. Even times of like the famous Irish famine, actually you have a food positive ratio in the places of the worst famine in Ireland at the time. The problem is all the food is being shipped out to London where people have more cash to buy the food, right? And so I realized that the issue was how does food get its price? And this is not something that most people write about most people think about, like, how does a sack of grain get its price, right? And so I started really looking into that. And then that was that other book you held up, which was Bet the Farm, which was how Wall Street became involved in food inflation at various times, most recently in 2008, 2011. Of course, we've had a lot of food inflation over COVID, too. And so I got very involved in futures markets and all this kind of really abstruse money stuff and Goldman Sachs. And, uh, and the book came out, and this is, now I'm getting to the point, just shows you how discursive and everything depends on narrative, right? Anyway, so the book comes out, Bet the Farm, How Food Stopped Being Food. And it's about the nexus between food and money. And uh, I get a bunch of interviews, and among them, I get this great interview with, other than you, Greg, probably the greatest interviewer around Terry Gross for Fresh Air, right? So I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm really pumped, and Terry starts to ask me about food, and I started explaining the futures markets, and she's like, what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: And I keep on going. I'm like, this is how it works, and the real price, and the future, you it. it's, and she's the interview completely tanks. It never went.
0: That was kind of my favorite chapter, actually. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and Terry was like, I'm sorry, I don't understand money. And I've never been so frustrated and upset in my life after an interview like this. And I vowed I was going to write a book that would make people who didn't understand money, understand money. Cause there are a lot of people out there who are like, I don't understand money. You know, go to any academic cocktail parties and half the people there will say, I don't understand money. So I want to write a book about money. And so I, exactly as you pointed out, the basic idea is that money is a fiction. You ask any economist and they will tell you that you ask anybody on wall street and they will tell you that. And so it was like, if it's a fiction. And that was the this only idea of the single idea of the book. If it's a fiction, it should act like it. And who knows how fiction acts better than an English professor. And so I started then trying to understand how money was a form of narrative and then traced it. It traces genealogy all the way from, you know, little beads and seashells to ETFs and Bitcoin exchanges.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I've been at not just cocktail parties with ordinary people, but I've been at dinner parties with employees of the International Monetary Fund who don't know what money is. Right. Good for them. Yeah. Right. And in some ways, I think economists are, they're not really well suited to understand money because their models require oftentimes that they use a level of abstraction that, guts it of all of the compelling characteristics. Now, in order to understand this book, you talk about metaphor, you talk about synecdoche, you talk about allegory, you talk about tropes. You reference all of the tools that one uses to tell stories, right? And as an English professor, you can't read a book without noticing these different ways of telling a story. And so I do think that as an English professor, you can kind of see things that an economist is going to miss. To the economists, money is a given, as you point out.
1: So they're not really going to delve into the nature of money. They're going to have all sorts of arguments about what to do with it and how it maybe is working within a particular configuration or context. However, if you're going to say, like, here's Karl Marx on this side and here's Adam Smith on the other side, right – Even so, they might disagree about everything when it comes to money and markets and labor, but they will both agree that money is a fiction, money is a metaphor. And we all know that money is a metaphor. Everybody has a perfect understanding that, for instance, that that paper dollar is a symbol. There has no intrinsic worth. And certainly, everyone knows that even worse than a dollar, that the thing that comes up here, like, what is that? So what is it? Clearly, it's something that stands for something else. And so that's how I start. This idea of what is the earliest money and what does that say in terms of the idea of earliest kinds of metaphors? What are we looking for in money? What are we looking for? We're looking for security, obviously. We're looking towards a, a way that's going to lead us into the future, a way that's going to protect us. And so I started looking at the very earliest kinds of currencies and those beads and those amulets, those things that you would wear over your body, on your own body seeing that those two were forms of protection, forms of securitizing the future, so to speak. And those are, in fact, the earliest forms of money is, let's say, those beaded necklaces that you find remnants of in Western Africa from 40,000 years ago. And What you're seeing is that intrinsic to civilization is, as you say, stories and myths and ideas like that, but also this idea of what's going to keep us safe, what's going to keep my family safe, what about, how am I going to make my way into the future? And the way we do that is we tell stories. We tell stories about, before there was science, we told stories about the stars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so money is kind of on that level of what we would consider an early, quote unquote, primitive, quote unquote, myth And so that's kind of where I begin this study with this idea of myth, and then I trace it as the genre of story moves from, let's say, myth to the birth of tragedy, and then to the epic, and then moving further ahead into the realistic novels, postmodernism, that sort of thing. And showing that at each point in this progression, the money itself, what we're dealing with now is a postmodern form of money.
0: Yeah, you said that money conforms to the fictions of the age. You're not making a causal argument, but it would be interesting if in order for these more complicated things like ETFs and derivatives to emerge, there has to be some kind of intellectual preparation kind of laid down by the nature of the stories that we tell. But, you know, economists have their own stories. I think you start off the book by pointing out that the myth of origin that most economists subscribe to as to where money came from, which Adam Smith said at first, and then Carl Menger probably has the most well-known version of this story, that it was a solution to a problem, right? You know, barter was cumbersome and tedious, and so, hey, let's bring in money. And I think the anthropologists have proven this to be completely wrong. Yeah,
1: that's another one of the great money myths. It's a a beautiful story, and Adam Smith came up with this story in The Wealth of Nations. And uh, the problem with it is that you can't find it anywhere. You can't find it, there's absolutely no evidence for it any kind of historical evidence. And in fact, what you find is that quite the opposite. So for instance, in the so-called age of exploration, when you had a bunch of white European guys, with lots of weapons going to <laughs> other places in the world and showing how civilized they were, you see this shiny little piece of metal, that's the king, he's the sovereign. And everybody there is like, what? And so they explain a little bit more in detail. And they're like, oh yeah, we got that too. We got that too. They, it's, in other words, the more primitive you are, it's still there. Their money system is either a huge stone or it's a livestock or it's a grain or it's a shell. The cowrie shell was, the snail shell was probably the longest reserve currency in the history of the world. Up until about 1898, you could still exchange your cowrie shells for gold in Germany.
0: Yeah. And, and I think you talk about Alfred Krober, and I didn't know about him. I knew about Malinowski and the uh, Kula. But one story you didn't tell, and I was surprised, is you didn't have the Yap Rye Stones. That's a story that I tell in my classes, right? When I'm trying to explain cryptocurrency and blockchain and stuff, I always go back to the Rye Stones. And I think it usually does a much better job of explaining it than getting into the technical details. And so this idea, the Kula, of all these people investing enormous resources, going around and swapping tokens for other tokens... Seems really bizarre from the outside, but I think people who descended on 21st century America would see a lot of our practices as somewhat bizarre.
1: Oh my God. Well, absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right about crypto, which is it's very hard to explain crypto if we can't talk about stories. Because, of course, you know, what a crypto is a story, you know, what's in what's a Bitcoin? Well, it's, it's a Satoshi. Who's Satoshi? He created Bitcoin. And then once we start understanding a little bit more about the story behind it, then it becomes a little bit more clear. And then we like, what's Ethereum, or what are any of these? What's Dogecoin? None of these things are intrinsically worth anything. But if we then start saying Elon Musk is going to be accepting payment for you know rides into space and Dogecoin, all of a sudden we're like, okay, Dogecoin, I get it. It'll get me a car. It'll get me a Tesla. And that's about it. What's a dollar? A dollar is going to get me something that. I can go down the store and I can go to McDonald's and get a burger. It's the same thing. It's simply a matter of suspension of disbelief, just like you would suspend your disbelief by wearing a, an amulet that's going to keep you safe. And that's why the stones are such a beautifully, beautiful story. The reason I didn't use it is because a lot of people use it and a lot of people know it. And I felt as if I wanted to just do something else, but it's absolutely right. You want to, The story you tell about the stone at the bottom of the sea, that's worth its weight in gold.
0: Well, I mean, I think there's similarities in food, right? Now, look, food does have an objective nutritional value that maybe gold and these stones don't have. But so much of our experience of food is caught up in the stories that we tell, right? I have a class at Berkeley. It's all about the wine industry. And before you take a sip of wine, you want to know the whole story, right? Not just how it's made, but, you know, who are the makers and what's it like? And you have this whole section in your book about the farm, about sustainability and... You know everybody wants sustainability, but nobody can really agree on what it is. And so there are these competing narratives about what exactly sustainability it is. And it's a kind of fight to see who can own that narrative, right? I
1: think food and, you know, also we're talking about what's a sustainable economy. What's a sustainable economy and what's a sustainable food source? What's a sustainable energy source, right? Again, it's this idea of What is going to allow us to continue indefinitely into the future so that our... It's a form of ego, you might say, if you want to look at it psychologically. We don't want what we're doing to just collapse and be forgotten forever. So we have to figure out what is sustainable. But food, of course, was for a long time money. In the Midwest, if people say, I got cash, I'm holding cash, that means they got corn in their silos. You know, talk about unsiloed, right? Money is food. And so I spend a lot of time in the book talking about domestication and the idea of taking something which is outside your realm like a wild boar and then figuring out how to domesticate it, how to own that, how to then enclose your farm, how to create that as property, how to then start choosing which pig shall live, which pig shall die. And then same thing for cows, which ones are going to then work and I'm going to harness them and I'm going to make them go back and forth for me across the fields Seeds are money, cows are money, pigs are money, and it's the exact same thing structurally. And I know this kind of is going to, I think the difficulty of the book is that to the English language structural theorist is very similar to what you do in terms of harnessing words and harnessing metaphors and harnessing plots and characters to the narrative of what you're trying to say. It's very similar structurally. And so you have a different kind of narrative, you have a different kind of story that's told by the quote-unquote hunter and gatherer as opposed to the quote-unquote farmer. You have a whole different narrative of creation, of destruction, of what is different kind of heroes come up in those different times, and that's because you have a different kind of value system based on this metaphor, whole different array of metaphors that are of value to you. And so all of these things are switching very slowly over time. And I and now, like I say, we're living in a time of alienation, in a time of indexification, in a time when everything that we're experiencing, even this interview, as you pointed out very early, is one step away. We're not in the same room. We're not in the same place. We are having a derivative interview. And everybody accepts this as well, it's a podcast. It's real. To Really to understand that we're living in a postmodern age when everything is one step more artificial than it was before. And this is, of course, how Wall Street today, I mean, forget about Bitcoin, forget about cryptos, which are actually a very small part of the industry. This is how Wall Street makes its living, is through derivative trades and through understanding metaphors upon metaphors. And they are in my estimation, better poets than anybody out there today. I say the guy who's trading in derivatives, the guy who's an option trader, the guy who's using the Black-Scholes theorem to price options really understands the ethereal realm of the sublime better than any other poet out there.
0: Yeah, I did a previous interview where we talked about how when the Black-Scholes theorem was created, then the prices all converged around the prices predicted by the theory. So there was this sort of feedback loop. And I think that we're shaped by our stories, right? We shape the stories, they shape us, and there's this feedback loop. But there's we're still kind of living in an agricultural era to some degree in that our terms for money are agricultural, right? And there's this one literary term that I had not encountered before or hadn't thought about, which is a catacrisis, right? <laughs> the reason I laugh
1: is because my girlfriend, bless her heart, she's lovely and she's divorced from a hedge fund guy. She knows money and she just gives me just constant help. She's just like, yeah, your book about catachresis, Fred, Catachresis." She, she, she won't even call it by the name of the book. She just calls it, oh, that one, catachresis." Yeah, Catachresis is okay. violent naming. The classic example is the leg of a table. The table doesn't really have legs. It doesn't really have legs, but you call it a leg. And so this is kind of a form of violently harnessing something ethereal, like a word, to something real. And so I spend a lot of time with that, and and maybe this is because my girlfriend's annoyed about it, is with Trophy Wives, how the institution of marriage has been locked in with the institution of money. And fortunately, unfortunately, I don't really know because I certainly wasn't there, but I imagine the, the more I looked into it that the first thing to ever actually take that place of money was probably a woman. That that was the first thing that wants men to control the society. I think a big part of it was transforming women into a form of monetary value. And that's unsettling, and that's deep and unfortunate. But you can see, obviously, I don't have to underscore the ramifications of that or how we see that taking place.
0: Well, money and cattle, right? So the English word trope comes from the same origin as trophy, right?
1: Yeah, that which is left behind on the battlefield after one side wins are the trophies and so you hold them and then they stand for your again your security your excellence your prestige in other words it's money it's money in the bank and if you look in the ancient greek stories they're always giving those trophies from battle if you beat somebody in battle that has to be the payment as you get their trophies and of course that gives you tremendous prestige
0: Along with the slave wife. Hecuba, there you go. A couple other things. I had to dust off my ancient Greek, but the telos means not just purpose, but, right, isn't it payment of debt? And was it like mas is a word? It means interest and offspring. And I think that's an easier one to understand, right? You buy the cow and the cow reproduces. There were other ones. About,
1: that's my favorite, finance, which yeah. itself, you know, the etymology of it comes from, at the end of the book, fiend, fin. F-I-N. And so finance and that word finance and a lot of modern finance actually comes from the medieval period because that's when all of a sudden in not only in Asia, but in middle of Europe, all of a sudden we're seeing this unbelievable globalism of trade, right? And with it becomes this proliferation of metaphors of money. And all of a sudden we start to account and count and we have modern finance and the idea of finance and here's you talked about catacresis. My favorite term of the book is anagogy, which is this idea of understanding meaning through the end and through the ends. And so what finance, in other words, how do we understand money? We understand money through due date, through settlement date. In other words, how does a price of grain get its actual price? It is when on the settlement date on the futures market, the futures price and the spot price actually converge. That's quote-unquote settlement. That's how we discover, and that's the term they use, price discovery, right? And so all of those things happen at the end of a certain period of time. And think about a mortgage with the word mort or death is inscribed in your mortgage. That's because like finance, a mortgage is a equation of the end. The moment you enter into a mortgage, you know when the last payment will be. You know exactly how much interest will be in that payment. What you've done is the banker has projected into the future, back into the past. And and this was a wholly new concept in the Middle Ages. From the start, money has been all about securitizing our way through the future. But in the medieval period, they actually did that. They were like, okay, 20 years from now, or 20 months from now, or 40 years from now, they are actually making it really clear precisely how this is going to work and then moving backwards. And of course, this coincides with this anagogical view of history, which is really an apocalyptic view of history, which is really a Christian view of history, which is that all of our meaning uh, among is based on the idea that at a future date, there will be the rapture, Christ will return and then the meaning, true meaning will be revealed, the dead will rise, those who, all of these myths about Christ at the time and which become a very much a part and parcel of medieval European understanding of how the world works, right? become intrinsic to the way that they deal with their money. And you say it's a feedback loop. They both feed each other, and you get much more complicated financial arrangements. This is when you also have the birth of the corporation. I spent a lot of time in the book belaboring, perhaps, the similarity between a limited liability corporation and becoming part of the body of Christ and that sort of thing, which was actually at the time very much in the open. It was very much an open idea of, if this is the way the Eucharist works, then clearly we can use this for money.
0: Yeah, and you said that there's a Greek term which means, what, commemorative coinage, and it's the term that was used for the <laughs> yeah. second coming of Christ? Yeah. That's nuts. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, the idea,
1: the uh, coinage is also one of these, s- such an interesting, uh, I think of like Perugia or something, like right? They're commemorative coins that would then be minted when you'd have like a visit of like a great figure. And I got very interested in, Why coins and the birth of coinage? And why precious metals? Because, of course, people always say, well, you're wrong, Fred, because precious metals have an intrinsic value. And it's like, no, they don't. No, no, they don't. No, (laughs) No, they don't. And the idea of why were these kind of ancient shaman, why were so many of them involved in metallurgy? When they were heating it and they were purifying it, and then all of a sudden you have silver, all of a sudden you have gold, bronze, and of course, there is catch value in bronze. There is no doubt that of, of all the metal innovations, that made a better weapon. Just kind of like steel. There's definitely cash value in steel because you make a better torpedo. And same with bronze. You made a better sword. But it's very interesting that the first, at least I think it's interesting, that the first gold coinage appears around 600 B.C., and that coincides with this idea of tragedy, in ancient Greek tragedy. And I think that there's something to be said for the idea of the great man, full of hubris and self-worth, than just being a couple of years later, just being melted down, stamped with another, <laughs> another face. It was kind of like the Facebook of the time. You'd become a hero for a while, and then you'd be canceled, quite literally.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's better to have money that has no alternative use, right? In prison, if you got cigarettes as your money. I mean, there's always going to be that temptation to smoke them, but you're not going to smoke a gold coin.
1: I do right? want to point out, though, about prison, which is that, of course, that is, you've hit on it, that is where we see barter economies. We see barter economies in post-cash economies, not pre-cash economies. The only time we ever see barter economies are in prisons or or also like in wartime economies, when you have like hyperinflation and your cash is over, like we can't use it anymore, it's worthless. Or in prisons where there is no cash, that's when people resort to barter. So it's actually, it's only after all of the equivalencies and metaphors of cash and money have been in place that then we can conceive of barter. And so I think that's why it's so ironic that it's Adam Smith who comes at this from this extraordinarily sophisticated moment in the history of money and then does a back formation with barter.
0: And then you also want to, like, since the word semi means both word and coin, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know, I interviewed Dana Joya, who is a poet who he actually wrote this wonderful Poem about money where he goes through all of the different phrases that we use in the English language, including money talks, right? Yeah. And money is the language of the realm, so to yeah. speak, right?
1: Yeah. That was one of the first things you realize when you start writing about money as in terms of plot, which is that this is not a new idea. And that there have been other English critics and structural critics who have seen this and have tried to write about it. It's not one of those topics that everybody instantly recognizes its cash value. In other words, it's like, why are we even talking about this? Why should I even care about the relationship between narrative and money, right? And so it's hard to make a case that there's anything intrinsically valuable even about understanding such a thing. And of course, cryptocurrency made that a lot easier. Crypto made that a lot easier. And the fact that we are understanding how... Tremendous amount of money is being made by hedge funds who are making almost all of their money, not through actual money, money or interest rates or trading equities, but through these kind of higher level derivative ideas that they're creating. And also, as we see in Bitcoin, a lot of the money is simply being made by creating pseudo exchanges. So, in other words, once you create, in, in fact, there's just a there's a suit I was just reading about before we got we started this podcast. There have been a lot of lawsuits against Bitcoin and crypto exchanges because they're not following the SEC rules for securities. And then there's a debate: what is a crypto? Is it a security? Is it a commodity? But I think all of that is a little bit to the right or to the left of what's essential about this, which is that the real way to make money is to own the exchange so that no matter what kind of trade is being made, you get a little sliver of your silver off each one of them. So how does that then relate to this idea of the story? Well, a character has has meaning only within the narrative. Words only have meaning within the narrative. So once you create the narrative, that's actually where the money is. The money actually quite literally today and what people are fighting over and suing each other over is who can own those crypto exchanges, how they can own those crypto exchanges because that's the frontier right now. That's what's the cutting edge idea. If we can own, like if we can own, and this goes back, the weird thing about it, and again, it's unsettling. It's kind of like the whole idea of of women being money. This idea of making money through governing the rules of the exchange. The classic story of that is the Viceroy of Ouida, which is this slave trading capital in Western Africa. And the idea is that, again, unfortunately people, human flesh has been money for tens of thousands of years. And you have traders, Arabic traders, Asian traders. And then you have commodity, mostly African bodies. And then you have buyers, mostly Europeans, who are then going to sell this commodity to the Americas, right? And they all meet from all these different surroundings, all these different backgrounds, and all these different laws, and all these different currencies. They all meet in this one district, right? And within that district, all the laws are different. And that's where the money is made. So in other words, once you can establish the context for trading and establishing this is our currency, that's where the money is. And that's precisely similar to establishing any narrative. Once we establish the grounds of a narrative, a Christian narrative, for instance, right, then we understand our basis for meaning. The same thing here. Once we understand that commodity narrative, that's where we make money. I think other people believe it.
0: Yeah, no, I think a lot of people who participate in the kind of crypto world, Bitcoin universe, they are attracted to it because they think that it is this very decentralized, democratic community that can more or less decide collectively which way the narrative is going. But there are the the high priests who, who can more or less dictate how that narrative goes. But I have a bigger question, which is, I think most people would say that finance has become more complex over the last couple of millennia, right? And if you look at sort of the number of assets in our economy and divide it by the net worth of our economy, right, you get a very high ratio. You know, you have CDOs and CDOs squared. You have the notional principle of the uh, swaps market is whatever, $900 trillion. So you have this massive financial, complex financial infrastructure sitting on a relatively small base. But is the technology of narrative, has it also gotten more complex since the ancient times or is there like a constant level of narrative complex in some ways if you think about the narratives they may be even more complex in around the campfire than they are now i think narrative has been shattered to a great extent i think that's part of
1: our crisis of narrative is a humanitarian crisis so i was saying earlier about disorientation and alienation I think it's the same sort of thing that we see in terms of income inequality in in, in society at large, which is on the one hand, right, it's almost on the one hand, absolutely has no notion of what is on the other hand at all. They can't even speak to each other at this point in terms of income inequality. I think the same thing goes for narrative so that I think a lot of people have a perception of, let's say, what is the narrative of what's going on right now? And then there are two people who disagree. It's kind of like, a, you know, we just said our Passover Seder It's like the four kinds of children. What are the questions they ask? And the two kinds of people are dis, who disagree are, A, the people who have no idea what narrative is anymore. In other words, this the whole structure has collapsed in terms of the Snapchatification and the TikTokification of how younger people are really experiencing narrative, which I would even say is a non-narrative. So you can't even understand what that is the two sides can't talk to each other and also what you what we're seeing is this basic contesting of what is the narrative anyway because what we're seeing is increasingly a crisis of what can we all agree on is the truth because as we all know you bandy about the term conspiracy theorist right the idea is simply that what you think is the truth is not at all what is really going on. There's a whole other counter narrative, alt narrative, parallel narrative that is going on at the exact same time. And so what you think is actually going on is not. And so all of those all of those things have brought I think the idea of narrative to a real crisis. I think the technology has brought it to a crisis. I think deconstruction and postmodernism has brought narrative to a crisis. And I think we and I think we can just see it collapsing around us politically and culturally. And so I think at this point The technologies of money, right, which are also in many ways meta and post-narrative and alt and parallel universe, right, like in terms of what we're talking about, these Bitcoin exchanges, it works for money, it works for the symbols more than it works for the people. I think it used to be that the people used to be in charge of the symbols. We kind of had the upper hand, but I think now we're seeing and I think everybody agrees that, that's the vision that's kind of that negative dystopian vision that everybody has. The machines are taking control. The symbols, the things that we've created, the technology is greater than we are. AI, these are the large stories circulating right now around us and the large fears. So yeah, I agree with you. It, it's not as though that the that these technologies always go in the same direction in lockstep. And I think that's part of the problem right now. That's probably what even leads me to write a book like this. I'm probably even unaware of the cultural forms that are making somebody say, wait a second, the narrative has been destroyed. For instance, it's clear, if you go back about 10 years, you look at people who are saying the narrative of the dollar is over. It is no longer be the international reserve currency. That was a very interesting moment. I think now people are saying, oh, dollar is stronger than ever, blah, 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 blah. But in fact... That was the idea. The idea with DeFi, with decentralized finance, was that we don't need the dollar. We don't need these very large sovereign wealth to create money. But of course, now that's changed. And so maybe narrative will change along with it. And you can see right now, you can see, in fact, that the whole story of crypto has taken a back seat to, let's say, what is China going to do with their debt? What is Russia going to do with its finances? What is In other words, what are the BRICs going to do? What is Latin America going to do? Because all of a sudden, the narrative stakes have changed. The narrative stakes have changed, really, uh, most recently with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And all of a sudden, people are like, whoa, we have to reestablish basic money and where it's coming from and what that means. Because all of a sudden, the narrative has gone back into nationalism.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I've never heard literary critics talk in terms of narrative technology but it seems to be yeah. an underlying current in your book this idea that okay the technology of tragedy coincided with this idea of coinage and then the technology of the novel kind of corresponded to the emergence of these organizational forms and the beginnings of paper money and then one of my favorite moments in the book is when you talk about the complete depegging of the dollar from gold right it was for all intents and purposes depegged but when they made the actual official depegging under Nixon and you highlighted that this was really right around the time that Levi Strauss was writing about floating signifiers and, i never made that connection right. before it, the more i did it like when i first started this book that was going to be the whole book the whole book was going to be that weekend
1: from friday the 13th of august 1971 till sunday the 15th of august 1971 from the crisis of the dollar and John Connolly and Nixon going to Camp David to him announcing that the dollar would no longer be anchored to gold, right? That was gonna be the entire book. And then the editors just kept pushing me, pushing me to go beyond, to go earlier. And so all of a sudden he got this kind of monstrous idea. But again and again, I saw these weird, uncanny correspondences between the narratives and the money, but at that point, the literary criticism and the money, because the dollar is to gold as like deconstruction is to Wordsworth, which just completely tears it apart and undoes it and says, what's behind is death of the author. It doesn't matter. He doesn't matter. The words are free floating signifiers. We can discuss them in X, Y, and Z sort of way, and they will have just as much meaning. And of course, there's danger to that. I think we now, we've seen that a lot of those deconstructionist critics of that time actually had roots in fascism. And you can see that, that, in fact, when you do try to deracinate words and money from anything beneath it that is based on humanitarian needs, such as food or clothing or shelter, that all of a sudden you're getting into a very cold environment, right? Money, we have to remember. And I think ultimately the point of the book is that we have to remember the stories do define us. We have to remember that, in fact, it's about us, it's about humans, about human bodies, about human shelter, about human need. All those things have to come first. We cannot be the victims of the own stories that we tell. And I think that's again and again what we're seeing. We, most recently, we see it with Chat GPT. Oh my God, are we gonna be the, and in fact, it's quite clear that money and the story combine in, in ChatGPT on the total literal level. And the fear is that, oh my God, the tool we've created is gonna start controlling us. And I think everybody agrees that it's fraught. Not everybody, some people are like, oh, it's going to be great. But anybody who thinks about it for a while knows, sure, it's going to be great, but it's also fraught. And so we also got to keep our eye
0: on that. Now, I wonder if there's levels of symbolic complexity that you could measure. I remember reading, was it Johann Huizinga back in, uh, I wrote this book about, was it the waning of the Middle Ages, right, where he talks about how at one point, every single thing on the planet had some symbolism, you know, every color, every animal every day of the week and so forth. And then Protestantism came along and said, let's just kind of simplify things, get rid of all this imagery and so forth and have nice white walls with clean windows. And it's sometimes when we see these financial collapses, like in 2008, right, where people were having CDO squared, cubed, quadruple and so forth. At some point, people just said, we need to simplify things, right? And we need to get rid of this imaginative inverted pyramid of meaning. I love the
1: idea of financial crash as Protestant. I think it's so true. It's so clearly, obviously true. What was it Herbert Hoover said, like, let's purge the rot out of the system or whatever? And, and again, to get back to the alt reality thing, if you, the conspiracy theorist is always saying it's gold, it's go back to the gold standard. It's gonna to, right? Which is like a Protestant version. It's, this is way too Catholic and I spend a lot of time in the book with allegory, which, of course, it comes after epic. All of a sudden, that kind of late middle ages, what is the way writers are communicating their story through these great allegories of Pilgrim's progress and, and money is completely allegorical. In other words, it's a system in which everything is standing for something else. And again, you look at the hedge fund guys, you look at this kind of wildly Baroque system that they've come up with, in which everything is standing for everything else. And they're not only trading, they're trading on a wide variety of the Greeks. It's not just getting to Alpha, but there's Zoma and Zeta, this entire allegorical universe out there. And of course, just as it was in medieval times, the allegorical figures are all at war. There's this kind of hidden secret war parallel to anything real among the symbols. And that's where the money is. That is actually where the money is in in terms of the quants at, at hedge funds. All they are doing is a mathematical ratio of allegorical figurations of value through artificial intelligence trying to figure out what the result will be in milliseconds faster than anybody else, and then trading on that. There's a tremendous amount of money in understanding that allegorical universe. The problem is, of course, that allegorical universe has nothing to do with you and me, or really with anybody else or human needs.
0: Now, I used to teach a course on American financial history many years ago, and I used to assign this article, which was all about the Wizard of Oz. Right. And I forget who it was who wrote this, the economic historian. Yeah. And when I read that, I was like, I cannot believe that, you know, I was raised on the story of Wizard of Oz. And I had absolutely no idea that Oz was the ounce of gold and the yellow brick road. And William Jennings Bryan makes an appearance and McKinley is the wizard. And I think yeah. the author, Frank I'll Baum, guess. wound up just running with the story and forgetting about the allegory. But the whole motivation behind that and the whole cross of gold speech by William Jennings Bryan. Just an incredibly powerful way of shaping people's understanding of what was happening with the monetary system.
1: Yeah, that's one of the more fascinating little incidents is the money allegory allegory of The Wizard of Oz. And the more you look at it, it's oh my God, that's so obvious. The yellow brick road. And I just think that there is, at that point, there was, I guess it's the scarecrow is the farm interest, right? The, and then the tin man is the urban mechanistic interest in terms of the economy and that those are the ones that are all getting screwed by the, the yellow brick road and the wizard who's going to get us off the gold standard and is going to screw everybody. But I think that that fear of the banker and that fear of that person who's working on that next level of allegory that that really has been a constant in American history and of course it the, the, the earlier form of it is, you know, the bank wars of 1828 and 1830. Yeah, Nicholas Biddle was an aspiring novelist or something. <laughs> yeah, so that's the other thing that comes up is that all of these early bankers who were involved in these bank wars and Jackson and the second back in the United States, and Nicholas Biddle is the head of them from Philadelphia. He was a literary editor. All these guys who are early bankers are, Alexander Hamilton is kind of a prime example, are extraordinary writers, extraordinary literary figures. Biddle was the editor of The Portfolio, which was then, it's like the New Yorker at the time, Washington Irving used to write for them, all the cool people used to write for the portfolio. And he was the editor at a very young age. He was this kind of brilliant literary figure who who then was like, we'll just, we'll make him head of the bank. And so 200 years ago, there was a much stronger sense that people who understood the complexities of literature certainly were able to understand banking. And so I do think at that point, in terms of technology, I think the technology of literature and writing and storytelling and narrative was in some ways ahead of the technology of money, right around the creation of the dollar in 1792, 1780, when Hamilton is first fitting together this complex of debt that created the dollar. So, yeah.
0: Now, where where I... I got a little lost was towards the end when you're talking about index funds and you're talking about this thing called the So I was wondering if you could maybe clarify that for me. And then you talked a bit about kind of the Russian structuralists and how they were related to this. The part about Brownian motion and random walks, that to me was, it's clearly a story. It's a story that, that we tell in all of our advanced finance classes. Yeah. And when people are like, what the heck's a random walk? And he said, just imagine <laughs> like a drunken man walking down the street or whatever. And, and it's like, oh, okay, now I get it. Yeah,
1: right. So the Brownian motion and the random walk and all that stuff, that works very well in terms of narrative, right? As you point out, it's a fairly straightforward idea. I got very interested in kind of your site. You're saying earlier, like, where is most of the money? Where's the money actually sitting? And a tremendous amount of that money is actually sitting in index funds. It moved actually from equities into the index funds. And of course, the index funds is an example of what I was saying earlier, which is that it's not really a thing like we imagine it, what an index is, is in some ways like entering another stock exchange. You're entering another environment in which you're not really owning those stocks, you're owning something that's reflecting those stocks, so you're always one step away from them. And so there's a tremendous amount of money that has flowed into these highly derivatives of derivative of derivatives. And that's where a lot of the money is sitting right now. And so I started thinking about the index. And it's kind of what you were saying about the money is really complicated. What happened to the story? And maybe it's overly clever on my part. Maybe I'm trying too hard. But what I'm trying to say at the end of the book is that the story ended and now there's the index. And I think that there's a whole theory of the relationship of the index to the text, right? How does one relate to the other? And that, and, the, and I think we've entered this age of the index where it's a completely other way of understanding narrative progression. It's completely other. Like you can't really, like by reading the index of a book, you have a completely different understanding than by reading the book. But I think that's where we are now. I think we've reached the index point. I don't know what comes after. I don't know, but I think it's going to be with us for a while. I think that when we're talking about investing, for instance, just on the pure money level, we say we're investing in an index fund of the dollar's strength versus European currencies based on this kind of security in which there is a transfer of value. And it's like, what? What kind of an, there, there are thousands of these index funds. They wildly outnumber the number of equities. It's like, what am I investing in? What is it? And the truth is they can't really tell you. What you're investing in is mirrors upon mirrors. I don't think it's bad. I'm not one of these guys who will say, that's obviously we just need to invest in gold. But you have to realize that's where we are now. We're in this kind of indexification mode where that's how we're understanding narrative. It's a new thing. And I think partially the reason I can't explain it is maybe I'm not smart enough, but also B, because it hasn't matured yet. We've really only entered this in the past 15, 20 years. We don't really know what's going to happen next. I think
0: crypto, well, yeah, crypto was a symptom of that. Well, it will be interesting to see what the impact will be on the financial system of the TikTokification of narrative, right? People skip over the story to a large extent now, right? I read that 80% of all the articles that are sent out through social media are never read by the sender, Right, and so the header is the thing, and your news feed, what you're doing is just reading a series of headers, and you're not actually double clicking on the stories at all. And I was, it made me think about how, with ChatGPT and a lot of these other automated story generation software ideas, they'll have these sports reporters, where it's, instead of having a reporter say, "Oh, and then Casey came to the bat and hit the ball," right? They just punch in the number of strikes, number of balls, and then the runs and then the software says in the late breaking game, Phoenix beat San Antonio, whatever. And it's if, if there's a relationship that's, if there's a logical relationship between the inputs and the narrative that's generated from the inputs, then why don't just cut to the chase and give me the inputs. And then I don't need the story because all I'm going to do is I'm going to take that story and convert it back to the inputs. Yeah. Docs <laughs> win three, two, done. But this goes back to, I
1: think the first thing we were talking about English and journalism. English, and journalism. I teach all the time. I teach journalism. What do I teach? I teach certainly long-form narrative and feature writing, but I also teach a lot of first-year students. And it's like journalism is a structure, and this is exactly what has to go into the lead. This is what comes next. Then you need this quote. Then you need more detail. Then you need to add the research. Then you need the secondary source quote. So actually what we're seeing is journalism itself, as you point out, is becoming much more mechanical. This happens, we're talking about the technology of writing. We see this kind of mechanical, what we call in journalism, the inverted pyramid story, with the quote-unquote most important news at the top, right? Which is really what's happened to news now, as we know. We see this occurring after, well, actually during the Civil War because of the telegraph. Because of the technology of the telegraph and the, the instantaneous electrification, of course, we're just seeing, that's what I'm saying, we don't know what's going to happen next with electrification. We're just beginning to come to terms with the telegraph and what that did to the way we tell stories over the past from like 1870s, past 150 years. That's what created this kind of modern news story that, ha, that is structured based on the quote-unquote most important thing first, how many people died in that battle? Where is the general going to go next? right? And so on the one hand, there's a good argument. Chat could do that just as well as anything else. And certainly you look at Bloomberg, already the quarterly report the stories are being written by machine. They're machine written. And again, I'm not against it. I don't hate the future, but certainly that's changing the idea of what it is we need to do to define ourselves as human. You were saying earlier, what do we do to define ourselves as human? We tell stories and we use money, right? Neither of those things are both kind of We're starting starting to elude our grasp. The machines are doing more of the trading and the machines are getting pretty good telling stories. And as you point out also in terms of the Internet, the public realm and the private realm, everything is same. we have this unbelievable disparity between what is in us, this private realm, and then what immediately we put in electricity and it goes out on our Facebook feed, the public realm. Everything has become the public realm, right? Then we start talking about stuff like for OnlyFans, where all this stuff that was always supposed to be private realm is now wildly in the public realm. And so when everything that was in the private realm is now in the public realm, what the hell is it that we got? What do we have anymore that defines me? And I think the answer
0: increasingly is nothing. (laughs) I just went to a wedding this past weekend, and I was asked to give a speech, and so I cooked something up, but a lot of people told me that I should just use ChatGPT and I could probably come up with something that was better than anything I could come up on my own. And so, you know, last question, you, you teach English and journalism. These are normally considered separate, you know, one's part of the humanities and one is, I guess, more of like a trade or profession, Yeah. meaning the latter is bounded by presumably some sense of professional ethics and theory, <laughs> right? but a legal um, case going on right now, we can... <laughs> But, you know, you sometimes see some of our best writers work in both domains. So is there a separate set of skills that you need to convey to these different students? Or are they, in many ways, overlapping? That's a very, that's a deep question, a very different question. I think what I
1: tell my students, which I guess the only way I can answer this question, is that just two things. You have to know what kind of writer you are and then just follow that story you want to tell. That's it. I don't really think there is that much difference between, let's say, fiction and journalism. And In fact, it's funny. For various reasons, I've been reading a lot of contemporary bestsellers just over the past week for some other research I'm doing. And what I'm seeing is, and the example here also, it's this kind of post-Civil War example of when the 19th century realism turns into that, quote-unquote, naturalism, that hyper-realism that you see. And that really comes from war reporters from the Spanish Civil War, from which is 1898 to like 1900, right? That's that two-year Spanish Civil War, where all of a sudden we saw war correspondents, the chief one of them being Stephen Crane, becoming newspaper correspondents. Then we can see that growth through this kind of very macho tradition of the Hemingway-esque kind of writing. And then you even move to the to so even further and we get like this Tom Clancy type thing, this Dan Brown type of fiction, wild bestsellers. What is what is fiction and what is fact in these stories? And the truth is that the secret sauce of these stories, let's say the Da Vinci Code, is you can't tell one from the other. He, Dan Brown lies as easily as he speaks the truth. And that's what people want to hear and know, because the whole issue of truth as I was saying earlier, is in crisis right now. And when things are in crisis, as
0: Wall Street knows, that's where the money is. Well, Fred, thanks so much for joining me. It's been great. This book, The Money Plot, is a lot of fun. And I'm going to pillage and plunder a lot of the insight and (laughs) bring it into a bunch of my finance classes. And so thanks so much for joining me. And we could also spend a lot more time talking about food, but perhaps (laughs) we could do that on another day. Thank you, Greg. Real appreciate it.